The Torah content from now through Pesach has been sponsored by the Kofsky family in loving memory of Adira, who loved big ideas and asking big questions. Okay, we, when we last left our hero, David Melech, he was in distress. Uh, we were doing Perak Vav of Tehillim, and I think maybe the best thing to do is let's review the translation, but then also note what the Radak said at each step of the way, because we did the Radak... Um, we did the Radak up through the first half. Yeah. Okay. So he says, oh, you know what? This is not our analysis. Not totally understand. Um, Tehillim, I'm opening the wrong thing. Tehillim uh, 6, text analysis, uh, uh, text analysis notes. This is the one with the colors. Okay. All right. So, Lamna Tech Miniginus Alashmias means more the David. So, instruments. Hashem al be abcha sochicheni. Uh, Hashem, do not rebuke me in your anger. Actually, you know what? Change my mind. We're going to read the whole thing again and then read the whole redact again. Okay. Uh, I think that'd be easier. We've got the whole, the whole picture. Yeah. So do not, uh, I'll just, so I'll just read the Tehillim in English then. Hashem, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chastise me in your wrath. Be gracious unto me, Hashem, for I am feeble. Heal me, Hashem, for my bones shudder with terror. My soul is utterly terrified. And you, Hashem, for how long? Desist, Hashem, release my soul. Save me as befits your kindness. For in death, there is no mention of you. In the grave, who will gratefully acknowledge you? I am wearier with my sigh. Every night I drench my bed. With my tears, I soak my couch. My eye is dimmed because of anger, aged by all my tormentors. Depart from me, all evildoers, for Hashem has heard the sound of my weeping. Hashem has heard my plea. Hashem will accept my prayer. Let all my foes be shamed and utterly confounded. They will regret and they will be shamed in an instant. So our our working theory here was, um, for the pivot point, is somewhere in seven and eight is the pivot. The first half from two up until the pivot is um, David Hamel addressing Hashem and beseeching him. And then from somewhere in eight until the end is Hashem addressing, oh, sorry, is David addressing his enemies saying that Hashem has answered my prayer. Um, so that's, uh, and then the reason why I split it in seven and eight is because I said that seven does seem to go with the first half, but then it transitions talking about the same subject, which is his eyes going into eight, which is clearly part of the second half because he's talking about his tormentors. So it's like, it is like a, 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 like a glue type thing. Our question, our major questions were what is, what situation is David in and what is Hashem's role in that situation? Like this whole thing seems to be like a, uh, we noted a very complex situation uh, of, uh, of like asking for salvation and also asking for, to not be rebuked and for Hashem not to be angry. So what, what is the situation here? What exactly is David's argument here? And then what are the, who are the enemies and what are they doing in the last three Pesukim? Those were our major questions. Okay, so then we had the Radak. So the Radak on Pasuk Aleph, I'm just going to paraphrase here, said that this is either, it's possible David said this when he was sick, uh, but it's also possible that he said this on behalf of anyone who is being crushed with illness. And he says that many of these uh, Prakim of Tilm were written to be ready to be used in times of, uh, uh, for, for people to daven with. And in this case, it would be davening for, um, uh, for healing. And, uh, and he says that it could be about the Gullahs, but he doesn't like that. So then he says, Hashem, do not rebuke me in your anger. Okay. So he says, what that means is I'm definitely being rebuked, but I don't want you to do it. Uh, I'll read the actual doc here. If you rebuke me for my iniquity, don't do it in your anger. Uh, this means to do it um, slowly. Uh, or e- like, uh, there's got to be another word for a lot. Kadesh Ucha Lispel, so that I can tolerate it. Kamosh Amar, and then he quotes a bunch of psukim here. Chastise me, Hashem, but with measure, okay, with moderation. 
Yeah. So that is saying that his sickness is a rebuke and he just doesn't want Hashem to overdo it. So one of the questions, I forgot if we raised this, but uh, what exactly, we raised two questions. First of all, what is making him frame the sickness as a rebuke? Okay, that's a big question here. Uh, like, does he know, like, through Navua that this was on a specific plate? Or is this a general thing where whenever you, um, uh, um, whenever you get sick, then this is how you should view it, you know? Um, secondly, we said last time, what does he mean in Hashem's anger? When he talks about Hashem's anger, like, are we supposed to think of Hashem as being angry with us when we're sick? Like, or is he just expressing that poetically? Like, to what extent do we buy into that mentality, knowing that Hashem doesn't actually have any emotions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Then he says um, in three, which was the, um, be gracious to me, Hashem, for I am uh, uh, feeble. Heal me, Hashem, for my bone shattered with terror. I think the Radak there just said that it's talking about his body as a whole and the bones are like the infrastructure of the body. Then he says in four, my soul is terrified. So that's saying that not only Am I feeling physical pain, but I am feeling fear and worry and anxiety. And so it's a double, uh, double, um, affliction, body and soul. And I want Hashem to heal me from both of those five. He says, um, uh, relent from your anger upon me. Again, there's the anger reference again, and save me for the sake of your kindness, not for the sake of my righteousness, because he's saying that I am, I know that I'm liable. Okay. Then in Vav, he says, there's no mention of you in uh, death and there's no uh, who in the grave who acknowledges you. So our question was, what about Olam Haba? And so the answer is, uh, it's true that in Olam Haba, the soul praises God, but that's not what the Tzaddik wants. Uh, he says at the end of Vav, yes, Avahat Tzaddik Lachayos, the Tzaddik wants to live, Lazos Raton Hakel Ba'odenu Chai, to do the will of God while he is alive. Laharbos Sachar Hanashama Olam Haba, to increase reward in the world to come. Yeah. I also, I think we should think about that a little bit more as well, which is like, what's this? Like, it's kind of, it's a question I get from time to time from students is like, if, if Olam Haba is the best reward or is the ultimate reward and like, there's nothing bad. So then like, don't we just live for Olam Haba? Like, like what's the point of like being in this world? I mean, it's kind of a weird question, but, um, but like, you know, it, there is there is a tension there about like Olam Haba is the ultimate state, but the Tzaddikim want to live in this world. So I think if we can clarify that in the context of this, that'd be good. Okay, now we get to the part, the new part. That was all review. Any questions on the review part? I mean, not not questions, but like just for obviously we're going to continue to work on it. But any uh, thing that that we missed? Nay. Okay. All right. So let's go on. Yagati banchasi. So how do we translate that in seven? I am wearier with my sigh. Yagati Anchasi, is that what it says? Yagati, yeah. yeah, in my side. I don't know. I would say with not, I don't know what that means, with my side. Every night I drench my bed with my tears, I soak my couch. Okay, so uh Redox says, Asche Bholalamitasi Bidim Asi Arsi Amse ki ani neenach vidoeg alcholi. I am groaning and worrying about my illness. And I'm crying to the point where I soak my my uh my bed every night. Kibalila yichbarachuli the aneach adam vivke alcholio. So at night, the illness weighs heavily upon a person, um, and uh, he groans and cries on his illness because that's what, interpretation one is. It's worse at night. Suffering is worse. Oh, yivke balila. This is an interesting one. Wait, what is worse because you're lying? 
Oh no, I think it's just like sicknesses. Some illnesses are worse oh, at night. You know, um, I think like even when you have like a bad cold, then like not being able to go to sleep and stuff. You know, um, I always forget how to read that. No, Yeshanim, Yeshanim. Yeah. Um, my, my mnemonic for that, which I apparently have to go through, uh, is uh, Yashan is old because like Shana, like year, and Yashanim is is asleep because Shana, like the Yiddish word Shana, like beauty, you need your beauty sleep. You know, that's how I remember it. Um, so Yashanim, the Ain Roa Oso. So this is an interesting one is that he he waits until he goes to sleep to cry because then uh, everyone else is asleep and no one can see him. <laughs> that's an interesting one. Yeah. And he's worn out from all the groaning and crying. Yeah. So that's interesting also. I mean, like there's, the, I, yeah. Oh, I had an idea about the oh, go ahead. classy yeah. thing. Um, maybe he's weary from his groaning. Like the groaning itself is making him weary. Yeah. I, I think that's, I think that's good. So just to elaborate on that. I mean, there's the pain of the illness then there's the pain of the psychological, uh, the, the, the worry like that, that. And then there's the just being worn out from, from being in this prolonged state of groaning and crying. You know, that seems to be what you're saying here. Uh, hold on just one second. Whoever said on the Zoom. Yeah, Zev. Um, I feel like if it was initially, it would be like, it's not worth crying. It's just making you worse like i think if if crying were a decision then you'd be right yeah i don't think this is really uh i think i think this is just like it's that bad that he he can't can't control it but you are right yeah yeah (laughs) snap out of it yeah uh yeah was that uh who uh me yeah Uh, yeah just thinking that um so during the day a person's got distractions they have other things going on that sort of uh, absorb the attention you know the psychology yeah. the psyche and the soul it's not just the the physical and, and and crying is not necessarily so wearisome sometimes it's cathartic for for a whole as well so it's right. more the psychological torment and the worry and the you know that i can guess can build up but just other angles to it yeah that, that's a good point that's a good point that reminds me of the uh I think the Radak says on uh, Ms. Moshe Eliam Shabbos, um, when he says, Emunascha Balelos, Lahagiba Bokra Chastacha Emunascha Balelos, then uh, I don't know if he's saying this or if I am, this is like an interpretation I heard of it, but like, why do you need faithfulness at night? Because that's when all your fears come out because you're not involved in all your involvements of the day. So, like, the reliance on God. Uh, uh, you turn it. All your fears come out at night, and therefore you turn to God at night because all the distractions are removed. So same thing, I guess, with the uh, like Donnie saying with the the illness. All right, Umash Amar Esche of Emse, who Alderch Guzma of Haflaga. Right. So um, when he says I soak and drench, that is by way of exaggeration and hyperbole. So like we said in the Ram last night, the Torah speaks in hyperbole, the Nevi'im speak in hyperbole, and the Chachamim speak in hyperbole. Right. So yeah. All right. Ashasha. Migizras uh, Ash Yochlem. I have not looked that pasuk up. Kilo Amar Rikva. So he says we, we translated based on the article. My eye is dimmed. Um, Rikva is is rot. I think. Um, so my eye is like rotten because of uh, Mikas Enai because of my anger. 
Okay, this is different. I'm crying out of anger. Okay, now we're getting into the transition to the enemies. I'm, a- I'm angry at my enemies who are rejoicing over my illness. Okay, so that, so there, I mean, with David, this makes sense. I doubt that everyone, like the average person is in the same position, but David had people actively rooting for his downfall, you know? Uh, I mean, I'm sure throughout his life, but at some points more than others. So there's, 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 there's a different kind of crying, right? He's saying he's still crying here, right? That anger at like the, that the fact that people are rejoicing over his suffering, that's a, a different layer of suffering. Okay. Upirsh Asuka mean vitsur yeetak mi mukomo. So it means to move. Um, Okay, so all this is more exaggeration. So it uh, means because of all my tormentors. Some people say it means to be aged. Okay, fine. Um, all right. Depart from me, all doers of iniquity. Because uh, Hashem has heard the voice of my crying. Okay, this is going to be a weird one, an interesting one. Uh, when he, uh, when he recovered from his illness, he said this. Okay, so that's answering our question about the tenses. That um, this there's a there was a a time sw- uh, um, skip, right? That he that the, up until now was while he was still sick, and then now nine, ten, and eleven, I guess, is um, is he's recovered. Okay, so that's another way to make the pivot. <laughs> okay. Um, oh, Becholio. Or he's saying this while he's sick. Umad, oh yeah, this is the interesting one. Umadabra ahazi Oh, sorry, this is not the interesting one. And he's speaking about the future through Ruch HaKodesh. He knows he's going to be uh, um, healed. Okay, fine. Good for him. But then this is the interesting one. V'chol adam chole hamis palo mizbor Any sick person who davens with this mizmor is able to say this. That to say Hashem has heard my the sound of my cry. Why? Because God will hear his tefillah if he if he davens with a broken and crushed heart. So what is that? Yes, because it does, certainly does not mean that God is going to heal you, right? Because that's not we never. Is that say like when it says Hashem has Uh, well, Rofe would be a more um. A stronger statement, right? He's not saying here that that's a guarantee, but he is saying it's a guarantee that God has heard. Yeah. Yeah. So the question is, what does that mean? <laughs> right? Uh, yeah. And he's saying that every Kola has the right to say this. What is, uh, which Zeh is he referring to? Is uh, the Redox referring to? Uh, th- I think he says, Lomar Zeh, to say the phrase, Ki Shema Hashem Kol God has heard the sound of my uh, crying. Isn't that, it sounds like a, it says Kia Kel Yishmad but that seems like it's referring to the part where it's a broken person making a feel Right. That's why I'm saying any sick person who uh, can can say this. Because you're presumably broken hearted and crushed. It's the the, the Shari Dima Chazal, right? The sh- yeah. After the Horbon and all the gates are closed except Shari Dima and Shari Ona. Sure. Yeah, the gate of uh, tears, right? Correct. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so we got to understand this too. Okay, the questions are piling up. Shema Hashem Tchinasi Hashem Tfilasi Yikach. So Hashem has heard my uh, my supplication. Hashem will take, will accept my Tfilah. Okay. V'tam Yikach B'zos Ha'es 
So what does it mean, yikach? The zos ha'es uvechol es bevot filasi elav yikab lenu baratzon. At this time and at all times, when my tefillah comes before him, he will accept it favorably. Okay, so that's also expressing this confidence, right? God will accept my tefillah uh, favorably. Right. Yeah. Okay, so same question. What does that mean? And how could he say this? All right, then yevoshu vibahul ma'od kol oivai. Uh, let my uh, all my enemies be shamed and confounded or or terrified. Be here, be here. I don't know how to review that. Be here, Rafa. Yevoshi v'yavlukoi When I'm healed, uh, they will be shamed and uh, and uh, uh, tremble. Shahayum nikavim misasi who hope for my death. Yashuvu yevoshu raga. They will. How do we say this? Yashuvu. They will regret, like they'll be shav. Uh, and be ashamed in an instant. Uh, that's all. I never noticed that when we were doing it the first time instantaneously. What's the emphasis on that? So once they realized that their plot didn't materialize, didn't come true, oh, they're going to return to me to be at peace with me. Is this a real peace or a fake peace? And at that time, they're going to be uh, ashamed of me. That's, or ashamed like, uh, uh, because of me. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. So Radak, thankfully, has given us a lot to work with here. Okay. But now we now the real work begins. Okay. So we now have to understand the the Mizmor of Tehillim. <laughs> okay. So let's let's take it from the top. Okay. I feel like the thing we have to start with first is the how he's framing the illness, right? Hashem, do not rebuke me in your anger. Do not chastise me in your wrath. Uh, and he says in four and you and you Hashem for how long? Desist Hashem, release my soul. Uh, right. So wh- how is he framing this as tochacha and anger? Like what, what's what's with that? Um, so, yeah, what do you say? <laughs> um, you can use, like, there's like, like Chazal say about like Yisirin. Yeah. Just use it to be Mephashir Shemazim. Right. Um, well, the weird thing is they say, uh, if this is the same Chazal that you're thinking of, oh, sorry, you know what, I, I gotta say something here. Uh, someone texted me and said, when someone asks a question in Shir, can I repeat it? Mm. Now, I don't know, they were listening to a Lomdeha Shir, and there they don't have my fancy uh, mic. Um, so I don't know if it turns out, I mean, I guess I don't listen to my own Shir, <laughs> but if anyone listens to the Shir, I guess maybe they can give me feedback at some point about whether they can hear. I still want to try to get into the habit of repeating questions that are said from across the table. So, um, so, uh, so Zev saying that the Chazal say that when you have afflictions, you should use it to be mafashvish b'masav to analyze your actions. So, if that's the Chazal I'm thinking of, that's um, that is uh, right. Right, when a person sees Yisurim. Oh yeah, you're right. Yeah, yeah, fine. Right. That's the only thing. When a person sees afflictions befalling him, then he should investigate his actions. Yeah, yeah and then it goes through the whole hierarchy there. Right. right, right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Right. Um, but the, 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 oh, I know I'm thinking of now. Um, but that is saying that like you should assume like the hierarchy says you should assume that it was a hate, and if it's not that, then you should attach it to Bittel Torah. Right. And if not that, then you should attach it to you should say Yisurin right? Right. right. Yeah. Right. So the first step though is to assume that it is for a hate, and that seems to be what David Melch is uh, is saying here. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, so to what extent, and this is, I know this is like a big question. It's going to open up a can of uh, worms, but like, to what extent, like the way you phrased it is you should use that. Right. 
but me, like, is it actually tochacha or not? Like, like, is it actually onesh or not? You know? Right. Well, at least it doesn't matter so much, I guess. But what if you're interested in truth? Right. <laughs> you're right there. It doesn't matter in the sense that you can use it for, um, uh, you can still use it for tshuva. Yeah, but, you is, know? but is it tochacha or not? Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I guess you can't really know. Like, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, that, that's what I'm kind of asking. Yeah. yeah. So let me read something. And the only reason I'm reading this is because I, I uh, wanted to do it in Lomdeha this week and I didn't, uh, we didn't end up having time. And I think it is relevant. Okay. So there are a lot of these good, um, uh, let's see, hold on, let me find it first. Skull. Yeah. Skull. You know, I'm just going to share it on the PowerPoint. Uh, 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 yeah, uh, it is in, I don't know how easily you, you can find it, but it's in Sefer Chinech, um, Mitzvah Kuf Ein Aleph. I don't even know what mitzvah it is. Um, yeah, I was gonna listen. Okay, sure. <laughs> um, if you want to, I mean, you get a Sefer Chinech. Come on. All right, whatever. Yeah. Um, oh, you know what? Let's see if I have a handout from Lundaha. That was exciting. Ding, ding, ding. Oh, man. Look at that. Just for, no. <laughs> wait, 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 maybe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, I don't know what mitzvah this is. Okay. Um, but here's what he says. So th- this is one of the critical Sefer Chinooks about Hashgacha. Okay. So like I said, this might open up a can of worms because it's about how God does reward and punishment. But I, I think since we're doing Tehillim, this is a very important subject. Okay. One great rule prevails in all these matters of reward and punishment. Um, so uh, the, this is the Hebrew here. Who moded it? Something like that. With the, with the measure that, with the, with the measure with which a man measures, he is measured. Okay. Bemidash Adam moded ba moded in low. That's what he's going to explain. Now, many do not know the meaning of this statement. <laughs> uh, you beat him to the punch. Uh, for they believe it is to be explained in regards to Hashem by example of a human recompense, because everyone pays his fellow back according to the good that he does for him or according to the evil. But this is not the case with Hashem, blessed be he, God forbid. This is where the phrase comes from. Yeah. Um, for with Hashem, blessed is he, there's nothing but goodness, kindness, and mercy always. At every time, at every hour. Oh, so let me pause and, and explain to this here. So... Um, I think what he means. So, what 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 is he chasvashaloming about when he says people think that this is uh, that um, that God pays his, uh, us back for our evil just the way that a human being pays his fellow back? Yeah, vindictive or vengeful, right? So he's saying God doesn't. It's not like a thing where um, actually I remember this on. Uh, I think it was must have been. Like somewhere around the year, like 2005, after Yom Kippur or something like that, maybe it was after Rosh Hashanah, and we we're all sitting around uh, waiting for Mari or something like that. And then someone asked Rabbi Chait a question about like, uh, I think it must have been about Ne'ilah, about how like God is going to be, um, you know, God has is, is, is his hand open for people who do tshuva and he doesn't want the death of the, of the, of the wicked. And someone said like, and so I, I guess someone had said something about how when a person does tshuva, God forgives them, you know? And then someone asked the question like, but doesn't the guy deserve punishment? And Ravichi like looked at him and said like, what do you mean? Like, he, like 
God's just like, yeah, you, you got to get punished. Like, that's not what God does. It's not like, like, like you, you, you incur punishment and like you, God just has to punish you. Like, as if there's a, this inherent idea of, of punishment. It's not like a Christian hell where like you burn for your sins. Okay. So now he's going to explain what the real idea is. Oh, he says, that's what he says. For with Hashem, there's nothing but goodness, kindness, and mercy always. At every time, at every hour, his goodness is prepared for everyone who's worthy to receive it. That's a big off repeated line in the Sefer Chinach that the, that the good is always there waiting to be received by those who are worthy. Um, there isn't any justice though, right? Yeah, but this is what he's going to be, uh, I think, uh, uh, elevating here. Um, the garden of Israel neither slumbers nor sleeps. Hence, when the sages of Blessed Mary said about him, blessed is he, by the measure with which a man measures, he is measured, it was meant to convey that according to a man's action, whether for goodness or for the opposite, he is set up to receive reward. For always within that subject on which a person sets all his thoughts and does his activity, by his very example, will blessing be drawn to him or the reverse? Okay, now it's hard to understand. Let's keep going. Thus, scripture states, for he does not afflict, uh, Hashem does not afflict out of his heart or grieve the sons of men. That's an echa. And is likewise written, for you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Something like lokel chafetz resha or something like that. In other words, Hashem blessed is he will not make someone liable for punishment out of a desire for his liability, since the good God delights in goodness for the world. But it is man who sentences himself for punishment when he swerves from the upright path and removes from himself the preparations that made him ready to receive the goodness. Okay, so that's a big step here, okay, which is God is not punishing you. It's that you, God is only bestowing good. And when you swerve from the right path, then you receive whatever the consequence, you, you, you remove yourself from the flow of good and you receive whatever the consequences that you would get. Okay. And he gives a great example. Now, an illustration for this would be a man walking on a straightforward path, free of stones or anything that might cause stumbling, but the path had a fence of thorns on either side. Along he came and scratched himself on the fence and he was injured. Uh, it truly cannot be said about this man that Hashem had any wish for his injury. Rather, he was the cause because he was not careful to walk straight. So too, a man who sinned, the Midas Hadin, the standard of justice, will sentence him for his sin in any event. But it cannot be said of him that the good God delights in his injury. Rather, as goodness is withheld from him on account of his sin, harm will befall him. Our sages of blessed memory said something akin to this, nothing evil descends from above. It seems like, it seems like a kind of game that like God is... Like he set up the system so that this negative thing happens. All right, we'll get that in one second. Let's just, I think there's only one small part left. The sum of our words is that every new harm that befalls a man is an occurrence that arises for the person as the face of Hashem is hidden from him, right? Hester upon him. In other words, Hashem removes his protection from him on account of his sin until he receives the punishment he deserves according to the sin. Is that the end? Yeah. Okay. So <laughs> what do we make of this? Okay, yeah. Yeah, so let, let's keep our eye on the... Marshall here. Okay. So if, um, I, I think the Me'iri also quotes a similar Marshall, and I think that's the one in my mind. So I'm going to use the Me'iri's. It's, I think it's, it amounts to the same thing, but he says basically like if a, uh, if a person, uh, if a gardener paves a path and puts like thorn bushes on the side and says, walk on the path. And then you like close your eyes and like just start running and you get all scratched on the thorns. So then would it be right to say that the gardener, cut you or, or harmed you. No, he, he made the path. He gave you the warning 
and you were the one who deviated and it was your action that caused that removed you from the good and caused you to get the bad, you know? So that's the model of, of, um, of reward and punishment or really punishment that, uh, the safer claim was setting up here that, that, um, that you, that God set up, God always only does good. And he gave us the Torah and the mitzvahs and the Sefer and all that's all, all, everything we need in order to be able to do good. And when we deviate, we get the, the, the consequences. Now, this is where the idea of everything that God does is in line with justice comes in, which is that the amount that we get is exactly the amount that we deserve. Okay. And by deserve, I think it's very easy to think of that on a sort of like a basic level. I think people think of it as like a, uh, almost like an arbitrary thing. Like, like each Avera is worth like a certain amount of like punishment points. And, uh, like you just get your quota, you know, um, like you keep suffering until you get your quota, you know, but like, you know, we have to recognize like there are innumerable factors that, that will dictate exactly how much suffering you have. And it's based on the, you know, the laws of nature. It's based on your psyche. It's based on how much you're going to suffer based on your level of perfection. It's, you know, it's all, everything is with perfect mishpat. And that's really where the principle of kichol derachav mishpat comes in is it is, everything is in line with chachaman in line with, uh, with, with, uh, with what is like fair, you know? Um, and, and the particulars we can't really like calculate, you know? So that's the model I've been working with for a long time. <laughs> and, and he does use the term Hester Panim. I mean, that's, you know, he, at the end, he kind of said it like, God hides his face until you get what you deserve. That's kind of oversimplifying it in the sense that in reality, this is happening all the time. Like we are constantly in involved in many, many, many good things in Zahuyos and having many, many Avonos, you know, but the one thing that we can be sure of, and I think this is really where David Melks then comes in is if you are suffering, you know, so then the thing you could be sure of is it is in line with justice Right. Even if you don't know the particulars, it's in line with justice. And um, and like you said, you this is an opportunity to to do chuva and to perfect yourself to the extent that you can. And in that sense, it's a rebuke. OK, not a rebuke in the sense of like God is sending you a specific message that you have to, like, think about this and decode. What is he trying to tell me? But the idea of like. I need to be mafashvish b'masai. I need to like in, analyze my actions and then improve in whatever way I can, um, and and uh, and that's really like all you can uh, do, you know. And here I'm going to drop a bomb. Okay, you think that was a bomb, all right? And this is a bomb because I debated: is this an appropriate ramam to reveal? Okay, like, or is this something that's supposed to be secret? Okay, but I feel like I have to. I don't know what to make of this ramam. Okay, I mean, I have my thoughts. But this is a this is a biggie. Uh, okay, I've never shown this to anyone before. Mornivuchim three twenty eight. Okay. Um, uh, what was it? I'm gonna do the Hebrew. Yeah. Okay. Oh, uh, you know what? If you want to also open the English, maybe you can spot me again. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, yeah, here we go. I'm, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but um, so this is in the section of the Tamiya Mitzvahs where he's giving explanations for Mitzvahs. So this is 328. Um, so he says, 
Uh, so one of the things you got to, uh, it's important for you to notice is, uh, that correct beliefs. Okay. Uh, how does the pines translate, uh, opinions? Okay. Fine. Hashkafa, right. However you want to translate Hashkafa outlooks, right. That the correct outlooks, which, uh, through which you attain the ultimate perfection, the Torah only gives their conclusions. Okay. And cause us to believe in these things or to hold by them in a general manner. Okay. Who, namely, God's existence, Vihudo and his oneness, Vihudiaso and his knowledge, Vihulto and his uh, ability, Uritsono and his will, Vikadmus and his eternality. So these are only like the ultimate conclusions uh, and they can only be like uh, clarified um, and specified and defined after the knowledge of many, many other beliefs. In other words, the Torah is not giving philosophical proofs. It's giving the conclusions. Okay, so far so good. Now, this is the thing. The Torah also calls us to believe things. And by the way, in Kafka's translation, when he says Lios Bedea, the standard translation is, is uh Lahamin. Okay, but this is just Kafka's translation of uh Lahamin. So the Torah also calls upon us to believe things that holding them, holding these beliefs is necessary for the correction of our political circumstances. Okay, well, how does the penis translate it? Yeah, same belief is, which is necessary for the sake of political welfare. For the sake of political welfare. Now, political, remember, political in Aristotelian terms does not mean the same thing as politics in America. Thank God. Um, uh, p- political in Aristotle's, I don't know his strict definition, but it means like the distribution of, of uh, uh, or the, the achievement of good for society. It's like ethics is on an individual level and politics is for the societal level. Okay, so the Torah has certain, so certain beliefs, well, I'll summarize at the end, okay. Kagon, Zesh, Anu, Bedea, for example, the belief that God is has burning wrath at someone who rebels against him. And therefore, it is an, uh, an obligation to be afraid and to tremble and to guard against rebelling against God. Does that mean that there's no punishment? Or is no, no, no. The fact that he's angry. The fact that he's angry. Okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> he's not denying his uh, tenth acre. Or his, uh, yeah, uh, the... Not 10th thicker. 11th, 11th thicker. Okay. I think 11th thicker, yeah. Aval shar hash but all the other beliefs, uh, proper beliefs in all of existence, asher elahim kol amadayim ha'yunim l'chol ribui minehem, asher behem yiskaim osan hashkavos shehim hatakli sasofis hare alfapisha Torah lo... Oh, fine. I think that's all I needed for now. Oh, yeah, yeah, fine. Okay, so so what we get from here is is, is this, okay, is that there are two, so the Torah ha, uh, requires us to believe certain things, okay, or teaches certain beliefs. Some of the beliefs are there because they are, uh, because they're, they are, um, they're fundamental truths, like God's existence and his oneness and his, uh, his eternality and other like things like that. Other things that the Torah has us believe are there in order to, as a means to an end, as a means to a political end, which is to make sure that human beings behave properly. And the one example he gives is the belief that God gets very angry at people who rebel against him. Now, the reason why that belief is not true, why is that belief not true in the same way as God's existence? Because um, God, God doesn't actually have emotions, right? 
So the thing is, is that, but the Torah is promoting this belief because for the sake of the society, then it, 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 if people rebelled against God, then that would be very bad for human good and for human perfection. Okay. But the question is like, how are we supposed to take that? You know, like, like I understand like for the common, you know, uh, like the masses or like for kids or whatever, you know, then you you just relate to God like a big human being, you know, and that establishes a certain baseline. But the question is like, what role do does that muscle serve? And this is the same question we asked before, but now it's stronger. Um, what, how does David Mel think about God's anger? Is what I'm asking. You know, certainly he, yeah. No, it just it's a Q and A question. Okay, sure. Um, certainly he uh, David Mel, um, uh, what do you call it? Holds by reward and punishment. That's not in question. Certainly he knows that God is not literally angry, but the question is like, are you like, is he just, again, it's the same question we asked before. Is he just expressing this using the muscle of anger or is he actually somehow on some level conceiving of, of God as angry or reacting to God as angry? I don't know exactly how to ask the question yeah. other than that. Yeah. I have a question about this. Yeah. Um, so I would have thought that the principle is like, like, uh, you know, the Torah is telling you Hashem gets angry, but really he does something that we don't understand, but it, it amounts to, to what we would perceive as anger. Right. It sounds like the Ramam is saying something different, that it's like the Torah is telling you Hashem gets angry to, like, do something good for society, but it sounds more like he's not saying it's like, listen, man. Um, so what is biblical anger? Say it again, Shayla? The question really is, is what is biblical anger? Because if we're assuming that there's something to learn out of it, or that it's something to speak to us, like there's nothing object, there's nothing productive about anger, other than well, like. He, I mean, he is saying it is productive for political ends. Is that like it will stop people from doing things that are against God's will? You know, mm-hmm. but I, I think let me start with the question in terms of what would the alternative be? Okay, uh, other than describing God as angry, what could the Torah have done, which would have been less politically expedient? Describe God as delivering justice. Yeah. He, he okay. creates justice. So it could have spoken about it in purely abstract terms that, that you could call Durkov Mishpat, you know, or what did you say, Jeff? I couldn't hear oh, the last word. Yeah. Just, yeah. Just or, could, yeah, yeah. So I think the other way it could have done it is like it says in the Shema and in many places is, is like in the Shema, we say that God will become angry, but it could have just omitted that and said, God will withhold rain in its proper time. And everything, nothing will grow, and like your enemies will defeat you, and that would all be true, but it wouldn't use the muscle of anger, and that's somehow not quite as great of a deterrent. You know, there's something about like in the human psyche of of fearing the king and the king's punishment that like by expressing it in those terms, it 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 makes more of an impact. You know, I think by yeah. by phrasing it in terms of anger, yeah. Um, it communicates the idea that um, like it's the repercussion for the action that you did, as opposed to like you didn't press the right button and now you're getting like the, the wrong, like the result that you didn't want. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like, like, uh, like <laughs> um, it, 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 it's the contra- uh, the con- uh, it, it's think of it in contrast to the safer Hakimah's muscle, Right. You swerved from the path and you got hurt has a very different emotional impact than like you did this action and you get this consequence for this action, you know? And like 
And yeah, and I'm upset with you, right? Um, it's almost like a punishment in itself. Like uh, if something makes God angry, it means that you're not in alignment with His will. Yeah. That, that that seems like a motivator in and of itself. Yeah, it does, right? It's like like not being in line with God's will. Yeah, like you want to be in line with God's will. <laughs> you know, um, uh, right? That's that's your yeshim. What were you gonna say? Ultimately, it seems like it. it Anger is one of the most like strong human reactions to something. Yeah, it's it's an, it's here. It's being used as almost an anthropomorphic kind of feeling where this is the strongest thing for humans. This is equated to God. And again, I think like you were saying, like is it like um, I think the Torah mentions anger just to relate to humans as a whole. And I think again that's being used here because if you look at the first line. It's saying like for the conductor, like this whole thing is meant to be said to other people, not just as a personal message. It's meant to be sung. Um, that's also true, right. Yeah, this is a public yeah. song. That's right. That, that's a good point. Yeah. Um, hold on just one second. I just want to stop sharing the screen and find something uh, else to read. Um, uh, I read this uh, in Raman Bakush here. I, I think this would be helpful for us as well. Okay. Um, uh, this is Binu Bachi Ibn Pakuda in the Shar HaYichud in Chovos Alavavos 110. So he says, it is vital. So this is him explaining why the Torah uses anthropomorphisms. I, I think we read this in Ram Vakir here. It is vital for you that you understand that the meaning of these attributes, which we ascribe to God, is not to predicate of the creator's essence, change, and diversity. Uh, rather, the meaning is to deem their opposites inapplicable to him, may he be exalted. What we have in mind by their attribution is that the creator of the world, may he be exalted, is neither plural nor non-existent nor created. Okay, what he's saying here, by the way, is when he says, he's there he's talking about essential attributes. Like when we say God is one, we can't have any positive idea of God's oneness. What we really mean is he's not plural. He doesn't predict a multiplicity. Or when we say God exists, we can't have any actual positive idea of the nature of God's existence because it's different from all other existences. So we really mean he is the opposite of non-existent, you know, or when we say, uh, and, and, and not created, when we say he's eternal, we can't have a notion of eternality, but what we mean is that he's not, he didn't come into being. Okay. All right. We would all agree that it was necessity that brought us to anthropomorphize the creator, may he be exalted and describe him in terms of attributes properly belonging to his creatures in order to offer a conception that would help establish the notion of God's existence in the minds of men. So in other words, God, so to speak, was forced to do this in order to, to, um, to establish his existence in, in our minds. Okay, how so? The books of the prophets express this for people in corporeal language, in bodily language, which is closer to their thinking and more intelligible to them. Had they described God in strictly abstract terms and concepts, we would have understood neither the terms nor the concepts. And it would have been impossible for us to worship a being we did not know, since the worship of that which is unknown is impossible. So, right, if you go to a kid and say, do you know what essential existence is? Do you know what contingency is? God is not contingent, you know, so then that has no meaning, right? Um, so it says, uh, it was therefore essential that the terms and concepts be geared to the level of understanding of the listener. First, let the meaning sink into his mind in the corporeal sense, as may be gathered from corporeal language. Later, we can enlighten him and gently guide him to the understanding and awareness that it is written in a way that is accessible and metaphorical, but that the true meaning is too fine, exalted, profound, and esoteric for us to comprehend. The erudite and astute individual will endeavor. Now, this is this is what gets to our question. The erudite and astute individual will endeavor to strip away the outer shell of corporeal terms, which envelops the meaning, and will ascend in his thought from level to level until he attains as much as his intellectual ability and perception will allow him of the truth he seeks. 
This is your analogy of the veils, right? Like the yeah, yeah. it was not my analogy of the raw bombs, but yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, had scripture in relating this concept employed the style closest to the truth, but intelligible only to the erudite and astute individual, the majority of mankind would have been left without religion, without Torah, due to their intellectual deficiency and weakness of perception in spiritual matters. On the other hand, words which may be understood in a material sense will not hurt the profound thinker, for he grasps their true meaning. But they can help the simple man fix in his heart and mind the conception that he has a creator whom he is obligated to serve. Now, based on this, where does it sound like Rabina Bakhi is saying that people like David Hamelech should do with these anthropomorphisms in their own life? Strip them away. Strip them away, right? It sounds like, like they're like training wheels until you get uh, to a higher concept of God and you don't need them anymore and then you strip them away. So that's that's taking a firm stance on this question, you know. So according to David, when David says this to to him, so when, when the average person says the to him, he uh, oops, sorry, I got to share the to him screen again. Sorry. Um, when the average person says this to him, according to Rubina Bakim Pakuda, then the average person says, "I'm sick. God is angry at me," and feels all of the feelings and thoughts with that. But then as you realize, oh, wait a minute, if God got angry, that would mean that he would, could change. That would mean that he's similar to his creations. That would mean that he has a psyche. That would mean that he's not one. That would mean that he exists in time. So then he would realize, oh, it's a marshal for God's uh, actions that either when we're not in line with God's will, then 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 we get a negative result or whatever, you know, but he would throw away the marshal. So that's one possibility, okay? But can now we, can we make an argument for the other side that, that although the Chacham does strip away and decode the anthropomorphism in order to get the idea, can we make an argument that you should still retain the feelings associated with that? Or is that going to, or is Rubin Bakhi right that that's just going to stunt your, your, uh, your perfection? Um, personally, I do think that you should keep in mind those emotions because like, I think, I don't remember who someone was saying this before, like anger is really a very, very strong emotion, but emotions in general, I think that is how we relate to people. And yeah. therefore that's, we relate to God that way, even if he doesn't relate to us that way. Right. So I do okay. think that it's important. Yeah. Okay, good. That's, that's well said. So th this is, and, and people can add to this if, if, if it's clear, but the way I've been of the persuasion in recent years that just like the emotions are only affected by, by physical and sensory things. Emotions are not moved by, by pure ideas. Like again, that's the whole premise of Mishle and Tehillim, which is that like you, you, the, the emotions respond. On? Yeah, that's what I'm doing. The emotions respond to um, uh, like, again, you, I, I say this in Mishle all the time that like you could summarize all of Mishle in one sentence, which is make decisions based on your mind, not your emotions. But that's not going to help anyone, right? So what you have to do is you have to say, oh, see this guy, this guy lied and then he got convicted, you know, because people found out about it. And then that guy over there, his house is all broken down because he was lazy and he let it accumulate. And you have to show the emotions, physical, concrete, particular examples. And then that's what the emotions respond to because the emotions are like a baby or an animal. Like, you know, like they only respond to the physical things, not to abstract ideas. So now how does this apply to God, well, you can understand the idea that if you disobey God, that God's will is good and the mitzvahs are good. And if you disobey that, then there are consequences. But that's very, very abstract and removed from the emotions. But so you have to speak to the emotions in a language they can understand. And in order to do that, you have to, and this is the juggling act, you have to simultaneously think of God 
in correct terms with your mind that he has no emotions, but your, um, but your emotions, you have to allow your emotions to relate to God as he's going to be angry with me if I, if I disobey his will. And, and the, again, the proof of this, not the proof of this, but the, 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 you know, you look at the greatest, um, this is not a proof. This is evidence. It's not a proof though. But like you look at Dovin Melch and Tehillim or Shlomo Melch and Shir Shirin, you know, they are using very, very, very rich, emotionally charged language, presumably in order to awaken the emotions and to get them in line with these ideas in the language of the emotions, you know, um, and, uh, and in other words, it's not just that they're writing for the masses. They're, it's true that it serves the function for the masses, like Rabbi Bakke and Bakuda said, but the Chacham who understands the ideas will still try to retain those emotions because for lack of a better term, the emotions responding to these ideas this way, that's the best they can do. That's the best your psyche can do because your psyche can't break beyond its own abilities. You know, and if you didn't address that part of yourself, so then what's going to happen is you're going to be fractured and your mind will understand things one way, but then your psyche is going to operate on its own terms. And that's not going to be effective and it's not going to, the knowledge is not going to be real to you. So you're, the goal is to line up the psyche in its way with the, with the, uh, the mind, the, the conceptions of the mind in another way, if that makes sense. I, I have a question slash theory that sure. I'm not sure if this is in line. Yeah. So why do you do that? I just so... need to find another document. Yeah. I'm listening. Okay. Um, so yeah, I was just wondering, is it too much of like a cop out to say that, like, let's say the first few psukim when David is saying like, oh, like Hashem, don't be too angry with me, et cetera, et cetera. Do you think that we can read that as, cause we just read, like the Sefer Kinnuk says that that's not how punishment works. So could we say that like, it's David trying to, like we say to Fila is to change yourself and to yeah. recognize those ideas. So can we say that that's what those psukim are doing for him? Yes, I, that, that, that's a good way to say it. Yeah, yeah, right. Meaning since this is Tefillah, if, in other words, if, if David were writing an essay on, um, uh, entitled Why I Am Sick, mm-hmm. you know, then there'd be no need at all to use these, uh, these um, mashalim of anger. He could just say what the Sefer Chinuch said, you know? But because, like you're saying, we're using this to try to change ourselves, you have to address the emotions in the language that they can understand in order to do that. Uh, let me give you just a, an example of this uh, in Mishle, and uh, maybe this will make it clear also. Um, in the um, uh, inside, you go on. Oh, no, we don't have enough time. Okay, well, we're going to. I mean, I guess tonight I'm cutting into yeah. my own cheer. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> um, hold on just a second here. Um, okay, so he said, uh, this is Sadi going to talk to him in the Mishle. And I just want to find out where he says this. Just one second. Where does it start? Oh, here we go. Yeah. Uh, if you want a sadigun, you can, you can get it, but uh, whatever. Okay. Uh, he says, V'od shahamon, the, the masses, kemenshi yadiyas hachushim epsalam krova v'kalam yadiyas Since the knowledge of the senses, meaning empirical knowledge, is closer and easier to them than intellectual knowledge, since you're born with your senses, but you're not born with like the developed intellect, Therefore, it is necessary to make metaphors for them in order to equate in their eyes 
meaning the eyes of the masses, the obligations of the intellect with the obligations of the senses. Beir Hadavar, the explanation is as follows. Shehush, the senses, kasher ro'e ish, when uh, when they see fire, so any organism, any living being, I think he's including animals, will flee from fire because it doesn't want to get burned. Okay, same thing if you hear a frightening sound, you will recoil from it in an instinctual manner. Because you, these things are sensory. And for this reason, therefore, when the intellect sees something that is destructive, or hears something that is harmful, the gila leteva, and the intellect reveals this to your teva, which in Sadigon lingo means your animalistic nature. And it sees that your animalistic nature is not relying on it, um, and is not accepting it, right? So what happens? Your intellect has to speak to your instinctual nature in a language it understands. The Omerlo, and it says, Simle, pay attention. This thing I'm telling you is like the fire that you've seen, that you flee from. Or like deep water that you instinctually guard against. This is the use of, of metaphors. To bring close to the animal nature what is certain in the intellect. And to say to it, this is similar to what you sense in your feelings. Okay. Um, okay. Then he says that's why it's called Sefer Mishle. Um, hold on a second. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay. He gives examples. Good. He says, um, uh, it's called Mishle because it has these categories. So it compares theft, whose deficiency is obvious to the intellect. It compares it to murder, which is something that is uh, obvious to the emotions. So in other words, it says... When you steal something from someone, then uh, then you're going to get killed. Doesn't mean you're literally going to get killed, but that's something that like awakens that same uh, visceral response and the emotions. That's initially, yeah, in the first parak. Uh, and it compares. I think it's nus here. I don't think it means promiscuity. I think it means literally like going to a zona. Um, to a prostitute, um, and that the intellect understands its, its uh, deficiency. labor. It compares it to falling into a pit. which is an evident destruction to the senses. Kasher amuka zona. Yeah, A prostitute is like a deep pit, and a strange woman is like a narrow uh, well. And it compares someone who can't control his anger um, to uh, a city, to a city that has no wall. That its openness, its vulnerability is, is clear to everyone. Like if you can't control your anger, you're just going to be very vulnerable. Like it says, a breached city uh, with no wall is like a man who has no uh, nothing to stop his spirit. So this is what I mean when I say that like, when, when we use these mashalim for, for God, it's not just that you interpret the mashal and then, and then shuck the husk, you know, it's that the, 
your mind has to understand it, but it's speaking to your emotions in a way that affects your emotions. So if you just said, oh, God's anger means that I can't violate his will because then I get punished, then it's not going to affect your emotions. So what you do is you say that if you do this action, God will get angry at you. And God is angry at you when you are sick, you know, because that is going to spur the emotions. If you don't do that, then you're not going to really be uh, moved by this. And your intellect will understand, oh, it means that that there is, uh, you know, that that I'm suffering as a result of some sort of deviation from the good and I have to do chuva or whatever, but it's not going to be, uh, it's not going to move you. But like the, is there a level where you don't need this? Yeah, Moshe Rabino, I think. I'm pretty sure, like, because and, and here's the proof, okay? Even the Nevi'im get visions that terrify them, you know? that that And even, like, in the Nevu'ah, it's described in terms of feelings. Now, I'm not saying that they need it for the same reason that, like, other people need it, but you see that all of their, and in fact, it's even greater because what happens when you get Nevu'ah, not from experience here, is um, all your senses shut down, so you're getting p- all your senses and imagination are, are purely the HDMI cable is being hooked directly to the Navua, you know, like, like you're, you're getting, you're, you're getting all the feelings directly from the prophetic content, you know? So it's like a supercharged version of this, you know, but Moshe Bannon didn't need that. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, this kind of turned into a like general talk about like how we regard, you know, uh, uh, anthropomorphic descriptions of Hashem. But I think this is going to be very important in Tehillim and in our relationship with Hashem and in understanding all of David's very, very emotional uh, anthropomorphic uh, descriptions, you know. Um, so, like, uh, we didn't get further in the parak, you know. Uh, I mean, we did the rest of their doc, but I hope that this was helpful. Um, so, let's plan on... Uh, trying to uh, crack the, the code and get the main idea on Tuesday. Uh, and then we'll see about Thursday. We'll see if we have Shear. Okay. All righty. Um, so Thank I'm you. still going to take a five minute break before the next year. Uh, and people who are going to Lumda, I think tomorrow, then uh, see you, see you tomorrow. Okay. And yeah, the, the, the Shear needs some work. Okay. So I, I'm just going to put this on. Uh, I'll, I'll uh, stop the recording and I'll just uh, uh, take a break for a for about five minutes. Uh, well, let's just start at yeah, 8.05. Thank you. You're welcome. If you've gained from what you've learned here today, please consider contributing to my Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Rabbi Schneeweiss. Alternatively, if you would like to make a direct contribution to the Rabbi Schneeweiss Torah Content Fund, my Venmo is at matt-schneeweiss, and my Zelle slash Chase QuickPay and PayPal are mattschneeweiss at gmail.com. Even a small contribution goes a long way to covering the cost of my podcast and will provide me with the financial freedom to produce even more Torah content for you. If you would like to sponsor an article, share, or podcast episode, or if you are interested in enlisting my services as a teacher or tutor, you can reach me at rabbishnewas at gmail.com. Thank you to my listeners for listening. Thank you to my readers for reading. And thank you to my supporters for supporting my efforts to make Torah ideas available and accessible to everyone.